Well, good morning. Uh, welcome. It is so good seeing all of you guys. As you make your way back to your seat, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, honey, Father, we thank you so much for today. Lord, thank you that you have initiated our salvation in sending your son to die on the cross for our sins in our place. Lord Jesus, thank you that you lived a life we could not live and you died a death we were all supposed to die. And God, thank you that you raised your son from the dead that your wrath was satisfied. And through the resurrection, death is defeated. Sin and Satan is defeated. And one day, Lord Jesus, when you come back to make all things new, you will completely destroy and eradicate the very presence of sin. And then we will be able to say, death, where is your sting? And Satan, you will be destroyed in the lake of fire where you'll be burning and weeping for all eternity. Lord, as we come to your word now, can you speak to us? Can you minister to our hearts? Lord, it's so easy for us to be overwhelmed by life. Some of us are facing trials. Some of us are facing pains and grief. Some of us feel distracted by the worries of this world. And as we learn from your word, help us to to remain firm and stand firm on the truths of the gospel. Help us to see the relevancy of the gospel in every aspect of our lives. And Lord, for those who have not believed, who've not received it as true, Lord, can you convict them? Can you help them to recognize that they are a sinner in need of a Savior? And for us, your people, Lord, can you help us to remain firmly rooted and to stand on the truths of the gospel and how it has changed our identity and the implications it has for us in all, every aspect of our lives. So please, Lord, reveal truth to us. Spirit, convict us and make yourself known. And we love you and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our series through uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians, and so we're in 1 Corinthians 15, so we have two more chapters, and so Paul is now addressing the last issue, um, the issue that the Corinthians were struggling with, and so more than likely this issue was they were denying the physical resurrection, uh, the resurrection of the physical bodies of believers. Um, so more than likely, um, the Corinthians didn't, did not deny that God raised Jesus from the dead. They believed that Jesus was physically resurrected, but they did not see how Jesus' resurrection had anything to do with us. And so what they did is they kind of denied that we as believers will be physically raised from the dead. And here's why I think that came about. Because the idea of a resurrected human body 
um, was kind of repulsive, was kind of unnecessary in the Greco-Roman culture because in the Greco-Roman culture, physical material was considered evil and spiritual was considered good. And so they saw the, the physical human body as decaying, as evil, and we really shouldn't pursue anything physically in a sense because that's just going to die away. But what's going to live forever is the soul or the spirit. And so that kind of belief, that kind of philosophy even impacted how they lived their lives. That's why sexual immorality was rampant. Why? Because it was just only physical. The body's decaying anyway. That's why gluttony and drunkenness was such a big thing. Why? Because it's just physical. The physical body is just kind of decaying anyway. So why pay any attention of taking care of the physical body? And so that was the worldview. That was the culture uh, of that day of how they viewed the physical body. And that now even started impacting how Christians viewed the physical body, especially in the church of Corinth. Because they were influenced by culture, they saw the physical body doesn't matter. It's decaying. It's evil. And if it's decaying, if it does not matter, it is evil, then there's really no point of God resurrecting the physical body. And so Paul begins to transition this new issue. But before he transitions to this new issue and really addresses it, he kind of starts formulating, first of all, common ground by reminding them of the message that they've heard, the message they've received, the message that Paul has proclaimed. And he reminds them of the content of the message, the content of the gospel. And then what he's going to do, and we're going to see it next week, then as he reminds them of the content of the gospel, he's going to correlate the truth of the gospel to the resurrection of the physical body. And so we can look at verse 12 um, real quick. That's the question that Paul is going to address, but we need to get to that question first. But let, let's quickly look at the question, and then we're going to get to the common ground. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So in other words, that's the major question that Paul is going to address. That's the issue that the church of Corinth is struggling with. Is they're saying there is no resurrection of the dead for the believer because there's no need for God to raise the physical body. It's decaying. But before Paul gets there, he needs to establish common ground. He needs to remind them of the gospel truth that he's proclaimed to them, that they've accepted as true, and then he's going to show them the implications of these gospel truths when it comes to the resurrection of the dead. So let's look at the essential contents of the gospel. Look at uh, chapter 15, verse 1. It says this, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you've taken your stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. So, so let's just stop here because there's so much going on in this text. Notice that Paul describes the gospel with four clauses. The first clause he uses, he says this, the gospel I preach to you. In other words, Paul says, the gospel I've proclaimed, I've delivered, I've testified to you. And so what's the content of this message? It is the gospel that he has proclaimed to them. Look at the second clause. Not only has he proclaimed the gospel to them, he's preached it to them. But look at the second clause, 
which you have received. Now, that Greek word for receive implies an agreement, an approval. In other words, they have heard the message and they've received the message. They've accepted the message to be true. A little side note here. Notice as we look at the clauses, notice the past tense, present tense, and continuous tense. Paul has preached the gospel past tense. They've received the gospel past tense. And look how the impact of them hearing the message and receiving the message is true. Look look at how it impacts their position. Look at the third clause. On which you have taken your stand. That's the third one. In other words, what they've heard, what they've believed to be true... Now, in the Greek is present continuous. Now, they are continuing to take a firm stand. In other words, this does not just involve this idea of they've heard a message, they received it to be true, and they've taken a stance once, but it's the idea of they've heard it, they've received it, and they're continually standing on it. And it's so fascinating, this whole week, like, I've just stumbled over passages that has this idea of standing firm. It's like Paul, even at the end of chapter 15 and verse 58, he says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable. In other words, continue to stand on the truth of the gospel. Even in a life group when we study Hebrews, it's this idea of standing firm. And what Paul really is doing, he is showing them that the gospel is not just a message that they've heard in the past and believed, but it's a message they've heard and believed, and it's a message that they must continually stand upon. And that's why he commands them, I want you to stand firm on the truth of the gospel. So the first clause of the gospel is Paul's preached it to them. They've received it as true on which they are now taking their stands. And look at the the last clause. In verse 2, And by which you are being saved. It's not was saved, but being present, continuous. In other words, the gospel is the means of salvation for the Christian. Like, we, we can look at the gospel in matter of, of, of how Christ has saved us from sins in past, present, and future. The, the, the gospel has saved us from the penalty of sin. The gospel is saving us from the power of sin. And one day, the gospel will save us from the very presence of sin. And in other words, what Paul is saying, what Paul is implying is the gospel has past, present, and future implications. And here's why I'm kind of beating that drum the whole time. Because for many of us, when we think about the gospel, we always think about the gospel in light of past tense. Oh, the gospel is the message I heard when I was a kid, and I walked up to the altar, and I got baptized, and that's it. But what Paul is saying is, no, the gospel is so much more. Yes, it's a message you've heard. Yes, it's a message you've received. But it is a message you have to continually stand on. And it is a message that you are not just have been saved, but it's a message that you are going to be saved. 
And notice the the conditional clause he adds to this in the second part of verse 2. And by which you're being saved, he says this. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. what, What does Paul mean by that? If the gospel is the means by which I am saved, he says, if I remain, if I stand firm, if I hold on unless I believed in vain. In other words, in the entire verse 2, I think Paul gives um, an assurance and a warning. What's the assurance? The assurance is the gospel is the means of salvation. The warning is... The Christian must remain firm, steadfast, cling to the truths of the gospel. And if they do not remain firm, if they do not remain steadfast, if they do not cling to the truths of the gospel, in other words, if they're not persevering in the truths of the gospel, Paul says, then you have believed in vain. Like, like what does he mean by that? I think the best way in the context to think of it is, then you did not genuinely believe. It's not like you wasted your time believing, but rather he's saying, if you're not remaining firm in the truths of the gospel, if you're not clinging to it, if you're not holding on to it, then you've not truly believed. It's not genuine. And I think this this idea of of not genuine is throughout Scripture. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus taught about the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, verse 19 to 23. And let me just read the interpretation of the sower. After Jesus gave them the parable, he gives the disciples the interpretation of the parable of the sower. He says, when anyone hears the words about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. We don't really have problems with that guy. We're like, yeah, they didn't even understand. There is no faith whatsoever. But the second one we kind of have a problem with. He says this, and the one sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root and is short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now we start having an issue because you're like, well, wait here. He's heard, he's received, it was short-lived. Is that what Paul means by believing in vain? Yeah. Look at the third one. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth, chokes the, uh, of the wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, this is the one who hears, understands the word, who does produce fruit and yield, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times what was sown. So, so if you notice the seed falling among the rocks, the seed falling among the thorns, is in a sense someone who has believed in vain. In other words, what I think what Paul and even Jesus means and how we take those two teachings together is that they truly did not believe the good news about the kingdom of God. Because here's why. The second they've heard it and received it, what happened? Life, life is what happened. Like for those in the rocks, all of a sudden they are confronted with pain, confronted by tragedy, confronted by the things of this world. It kind of consumes them. But let's just, let's just be honest here. Uh, life happens, right? Things happen. Have you navigated through life without any worries? 
Anybody? Have you navigated throughout life with life throughout pain or tragedy? All of us going through life will face pain, will face tragedy, will be distracted by the things of the world. There are things that we're going to worry about. So what happened to those that are sown among the rocks and the thorns? In other words, I think what happened is all of a sudden the good news of the kingdom of God now all of a sudden became irrelevant. It became this distance truth that they once accepted and believed, feeling like the gospel has no implications for what they're dealing with right now. And they walk away from it. It is this peripheral thing that they've once heard, but has no relevancy to their lives. And this is why Paul says... You need to remain firm and stand firm on the truths of the gospel because life is going to happen. Pain, tragedy, persecution, the worries of this world, the worries of a spouse, the worries of a wayward child, all of that is going to happen. You can't avoid it. But when it happens, you cannot allow the gospel become some peripheral truth, a truth that you once heard, you've once accepted, but now you see as irrelevant for your lives. Because what's going to happen, you're going to put it to the side and you're going to walk away. Instead of clinging to the Savior, you're going to start clinging to yourself as the Savior. And this is why Paul continually says, even in Colossians 1.23, If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. And so Paul's warning the church of Corinth. He's warning the church in Colossae. The temptation all of us are going to face every day is to be shifted away from the hope of the gospel because life is going to happen. And the second we start seeing the gospel as irrelevant to our lives, as a message just we've once heard, and we forget about our identity in Christ and what Christ has accomplished for us on behalf, that is when we start shifting away from the truths of the gospel And we, like in Ephesians, being tossed to and fro by every winds of doctrine. Because in our minds, we think, well, what does the gospel have to do with my 401k? What does the gospel have to do with my unemployment? What does the gospel have to do with my broken marriage? What does the gospel have to do with my wayward child? What does the gospel have to do even with my special needs child? And the answer is everything. I'll show you that application if we get to there, God willing. You see, the world's going to say, the devil's going to say, and the lie, the lie that you're going to believe is going to say absolutely nothing. But the Bible is going to say absolutely everything. That's why Paul says, you've, you've heard it, you've received it, now you stand on it, remain firmly in it. You do not drift away from it but you see the gospel is relevant for every aspect of your lives. So if the gospel is relevant for every aspect of our life, if it's the means by which we're saved, then the natural question is, okay, what's the content of the gospel? What is the gospel? Paul says, I'm so glad you asked. Look at verse 3. I'm giving it to you. He says this. Look at verse 3. He says, For I pass on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scripture, 
and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of them still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one born at the wrong time. He also appeared to me. So the very first thing that Paul says about the gospel is this. For I pass on to you as most important. Well, some of your translations will say of first importance. And in other words, what this implies is that everything in the Bible is important. But there are certain things in the Bible that are more important than others. And what is Paul saying? What is the most important? What is of first importance? The gospel of Jesus Christ. So if the gospel is the most important, if it is of first importance, then the question is, well, what is it? Paul, again, is going to give us four sentences of what the gospel is that hopefully we can memorize and we can understand. If you're taking notes, here's the very first part of the gospel, the first sentence Paul gives us. Second part of verse, verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. What's the first part of the gospel? That, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. In other words, Jesus, Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One, the Anointed One of God, died. Why did He die? He died for our sins. The, the idea of dying for our sins is that He died in our place on our behalf. Theologians call that, if you want to be fancy, penal substitution. In other words, Christ who was sinless died in the sinner's place to cover our sins, to pay for our sins. In other words, he substituted himself in our place. He exchanged his sinless life for our sinful life. He exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness. And this is the core of the gospel. Christ dying in our place. And why did he have to die in our place? Because we were sinners. And if we had to pay for our own sins, guess what? We would be dead. But yet Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God, the Holy One of God, died in our place. And notice the implications of the truth of the gospel. If Christ died for our sins, then to believe the gospel is to believe, first of all, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. I think we've heard it through the songs we sang. We've heard it through our confession. This is the truth we're constantly proclaiming. The first implication of the gospel, if it is true that Christ died in our place, he died for our sins according to Scripture, then the implication for me to recognize is that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And this is why the gospel is so offensive. Because the gospel, first of all, confronts you that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And we live in a culture where we say, we might sin, but we're not sinners. Because all of us are inherently good. We just make mistakes. We're human. And yet, what does the gospel say? No, you're a sinner. What does a sinner mean? You are a rebellious human being who's actively rebelling against the holy God. 
You are waving your fist in the hands of God and saying, you're not God, I am, you're not God, this is. By which the penalty of that is death. We're actively waging war against God. And guess what? You're going to lose. This is why we need a Savior. And so Christ's death on behalf of this sinner was not some unfortunate accident that happened. But notice the, the second part of that phrase, that Christ died for our sins according to what? According to to Scripture. In other words, Jesus' substitutionary death wasn't just a fulfillment of one passage in the Old Testament, but rather was a fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Like, I don't have time to go through the storyline of the Old Testament real quick, like one minute here, but the entire story of the Old Testament shows us the sinfulness of humanity, God's plan for rescuing us and redeeming us. Like, even when, when, when the author draws our attention to the nation of Israel, God redeems them out of Egypt, He gives them the law, He gives them the sacrificial system, and what do they continue to do? They continue to mess up. They continue to rebel. They continue to bow down to idols. And we're reading and we're like, what's wrong with these people? And what does God do? God is patient and steadfast and he punishes them, but he always delivers them. He always redeems them. And then through his prophets, he says that I'm going to do a new work. I'm going to send a savior, a Messiah, a wonderful prophet, a perfect priest, a conquering king, and I'm going to do a work myself. I'm going to remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. I'm going to write the laws into my heart and they're going to be my people. I'm going to dwell with them forever. That is a picture of Jesus coming. That is the entire story of the Old Testament. And this is what Paul says, that Christ died for our sins is a fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. Second part is is this, if you're taking notes, that Christ was buried. You see, Jesus' burial was proof that he died. Why? Because you don't bury people that are alive unless you're planning to kill them, and if you do, eventually they die. The fact that Christ was buried is evident that he was dead. And by his death, it appeared that sin won. By his death, it appeared that Satan won. By his death, it appeared that death has won, that Christ has been defeated. But look at the third part of the gospel. Not only was that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that Christ was buried, but the third part, if you're taking notes, that Christ was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. He was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. He was raised just as Jesus himself predicted in Matthew 16, 21. And again, the, the resurrection is in accordance with what? Accordance with, with Scripture. It fulfills Old Testament. And in our, in our assurance part, what Jared shared, it's so true. Like, like what we have to understand, like, like what, what the resurrection indicates to us and what that means for us is that God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. In other words, how do we know? How do we know that God's wrath was satisfied? How do we know that Christ's payment on the cross for us was sufficient? 
How do we know that the work was done and complete? The resurrection. The resurrection. That is how we know. And by his death, by his burial, and by his resurrection, he has defeated sin, he has defeated Satan, and he has defeated death. Death has no longer any hold over Jesus anymore. And the fourth part of, of, um, of the gospel is this, if you're taking notes, that Christ appeared to hundreds of people. In other words, just like the burial was proof of Jesus' death, so his appearance was evidence of his resurrection. Like he showed himself to six individuals and groups of people of his proof of his resurrection. Paul, Paul says like he appeared to Cephas. He appeared to the 12. That excludes Judas uh, Iscariot. More than likely, Matthias was included. And then he appeared to 500 at a time. Maybe that was in Matthew 28 when he gave them the Great Commission. And Paul says this, like, if you want to go find out about the information, go ask themselves because some of them are still alive, although some have still died. He even appeared to his own brother James. Like, what a wonderful... That's probably the greatest testimony to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, um, that his younger brother believes it. His younger brother never always believed it, but always rather denied it. Didn't think that his, his brother was the Messiah until after the resurrection. And then he became, uh, became the pastor of the first church, of, first church in Jerusalem. He appeared to the, the apostle. This might refer to the 12 or a larger group, including James. And then Paul says, lastly, he appeared to me on the road to Damascus. Paul says, in a sense, he compares himself as one born in the wrong time. In other words, he's either born prematurely or he was an aborted baby. But what happened to him was unusual. And Paul's point is that it is his call to be an apostle was unexpected, abnormal, with the result that he confesses himself to be unworthy of being called a full-fledged apostle. Look at verse 9, and then we're going to talk about response. It says, For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any one of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. Paul deems himself the least important, unworthy to be an apostle. Because he was the one who persecuted the church. He was the one that Jesus later called and assigned him to become an apostle. Paul doesn't think highly of himself, but he says, I, by God's grace, I am what I am. And I just love what John Newton says about this phrase, by God's grace, I am what I am. He says this, John Newton summarizes the Christian life and says, I'm not what I ought to be, not what I might be, not what I wish to be, I'm not what I hope to be, I'm not what I once was, a child of sin and a slave to the devil. I can truly say with the Apostle Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's the Christian life. You're not what you want to be. You're not what you ought to be. You're not what you once were. 
You are what you are by God's grace. Because here's why. The message that Paul has proclaimed is not some impersonal message that he's just spreading along, but rather a message that he himself have received and experienced. He believed that Christ died on the cross for his sins, on which he's now taking her stand, on which he's now being saved. And this grace that has been so lavished on him, he is working harder than anybody else because the grace he has experienced, he wants others to experience this grace. And he says the most important thing to him is not who is preaching the gospel, but the most important thing is that the gospel is being preached and the gospel is being believed. That is what is of most importance. So now you can kind of see before Paul even gets into the resurrection of the dead body of believers, he wants to make sure that a foundation is established. So let's look at the response here. We're done with the text. We'll talk about it next week. But if the core of the gospel message is that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture, and if Paul tells us that this message is the most important, it's the message we've heard, it's the message we've received to be true, it's the message by which we must continually stand, and it is the message that which we're being saved, What's his application for us today? So there's two groups of people that I'm going to address, believer, unbeliever. So let me address the believer here. Here's a question I want you to ask yourself. If you are in Christ, if you've heard the gospel, you've received it, accepted it to be true, um, are you continually standing on? Are you holding firmly to the truths of the gospel? Like, that's a question you need to ask yourself. Are you continually standing firm, holding on firmly to the truths of the gospel? Now, let's say hypothetically, because I know none of you would say no. Let's say hypothetically saying, well, I don't know. How do you hold firm to the truths of the gospel? I'm glad you asked. Let me, let me give you three things. For us to hold, stand firmly, holding firmly onto the truths of the gospel, the first thing we need to know is we need to know the gospel according to Scripture. You need to know the gospel. We've just kind of briefly talked about the content of the gospel. The gospel is Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. He was buried. He was raised from the, on the third day, which means... That as God's wrath was geared towards me because I've sinned against God, Jesus died in my place. And God has accepted that sacrifice as good by raising his son from the dead. So I have exchanged my sinfulness for his sinless life. And he has exchanged his righteousness for my unrighteousness. That is the gospel. Knowing that God accepts me, not because I'm a good person, God accepts me because of what Christ has done on my behalf. Do you know that truth? Do you understand that truth? Can you explain that truth? I think that's the first part. So maybe you're saying, I don't know if I'm really standing firm on the truth of the gospel. So maybe for some of you, it starts with knowing what the gospel is and what it's not. 
Uh, other parts of the Bible, Ephesians chapter 2 is a great, a great passage uh, for you to go through. Uh, Romans chapter 3 is another passage for you to go through. 1 Corinthians 15, those are all images of the gospel, presentations of the gospel that I would encourage you to memorize, to recite, to know, to understand, okay? Here's the second part. Not only should you know what the gospel is according to Scripture, but you should also understand how the gospel changes your identity. And what I mean by that is, because of Jesus dying in my place, because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross on my behalf, am I the same person? No, I'm changed. And how does the Bible describe my new identity? The Bible says I'm a new creation. The old is gone, the, 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 the old has, has gone, the new has, has come. The, the Bible describes me as adopted, as, as a son of God. The Bible describes me as the people of God, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. I am justified. I am reconciled. I've been redeemed. All of these things shape my identity of who I am. So when I look in the mirror, I don't see Neil as an awful, dirty sinner, but when I look in the mirror because of what Christ has accomplished, I see a new creation, someone who is holy, someone who's being made perfect, someone who's been set apart, who's been reconciled, and will be an heir of the kingdom of God. And again, it's not based on what I've done, but what Christ has accomplished. And so do you understand this new identity that you have in Christ? And I think for many of us, you, you might understand the gospel, and you can recite the gospel, but I don't think you fully understood this new identity that you have in Christ. Because you continue to look at yourself and you're like, well, I'm kind of a failure, I'm kind of a mess up. I don't think God's going to accept me. I don't think God really loves me. Those are the lies from the devil. Those are lies that you're believing. And yet, because of Jesus, what's this new identity you have? Are those things true? No. You're loved. Why? Because you're a son of God. He's bought you with a price. He's paid for all of your sins. So if you understand, so how do you stand firm? How do you remain uh, uh, holding on to the truths of the gospel? First of all, know the gospel according to Scripture, who Jesus is, what He's done. Um, understanding how the gospel changes our identity. And the third part is this. This is the tricky part. Understanding how this identity, this new identity in Christ, impacts every aspect of our lives. See, here's the problem with, uh, with, uh, with the rocks and the thorns. They might have understood the gospel, according to Scripture, but it never really impacted their identity. And since it never really impacted their identity, when they were st stuck by the worries of this world, with tragedy and pain, they didn't feel like the gospel had any implications for them in their, in their lives. And yet, because the question is, well, what does the gospel have to do with my 401k? What does the gospel have to do with my unemployment? What does the gospel have to do with my wayward child? What does the gospel have to do with my special needs child? What, the, what does the gospel have to do with my broken marriage? Everything. Because of this new identity that I have. Like, even think about it. I, I think all of us struggle with sin, right? 
What does the gospel have to do with your struggle with sin? How does the gospel help you in your struggle of sin? What is, what is our biggest issue with sin here when, when we struggle with sin? We're being crushed by the guilt of it. Here's the reason why most of us give up in our struggle against sin. We feel so guilty, we feel like there's no way I can overcome this. I'm just going to continue doing that and just hide it or just lie to myself and pretend it doesn't exist. But yet, what did the Bible say? What did Jesus do on the cross for us? Did he not pay for it in food? Did he not remove all of the guilt? In other words, I no longer have guilt because Jesus paid for it in full. That means that in my fight against sin, it's not a guilt of baggage that I'm dragging around, but I can be reminded if Jesus has paid for the guilt, I can fight against this. I don't have to be defeated by it. Because as he's paid for my guilt, he's also given me the power to overcome sin. How does the gospel help us in our pain and in our grief? The gospel reminds us, even in our pain and even in our grief, that God loves you. That that pain and that grief is only a momentary affliction. But one day, that is going to be removed. That is going to be taken away. Where there will be no more pain and no more suffering. And I can trust that what is God doing in my pain and my suffering? That He has a plan. He has a purpose. He's working out for His glory and for my good. And how do I know He's going to do it? Because of what He has done on the cross. The most horrendous evil that could ever happen in human history is what? The cross of Jesus Christ. And it seemed like evil is one, and yet look at what happened at the end. Jesus was raised and exalted high above. He has shown his victory. So if that is what God has done in the past through his son, why will he not do it in my life right now when I'm faced with pain and grief? What does the gospel have to do with my unemployment and my financial struggles? Well, everything. Because Christ, who was rich, became poor so that by his poverty, I might become rich. Is he talking about physical possessions? No, he's talking about something greater than that. So, yes, even in my poverty, humanly speaking, I am rich in Jesus Christ. And if my father sent his son to die for me and to make me rich in him, will he not provide for my earthly needs? Does he not know I need a roof over my head and food in my belly and clothes on my waist? Yes. You see, but what happens is when we start to not stand firm on the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel becomes this peripheral truth. We put it to the side and we get so distracted by it. And that's how the enemy is tempting us. The lies we're believing. And this is why Paul says, stand firmly on it. So how do you stand firmly on the truth of the gospel? You know the gospel according to Scripture. You understand the identity shifts that has taken place in the gospel. And how those identity shifts impacts every part of your life. 
Are you remaining firm? Are you standing in the truth of the gospel? Start to preach the gospel to yourself. Start to understand what it is according to Scripture. Start to recite to yourself these new identities you have, you have in Christ and remind yourself how these identities impact every part of your life. Um, now the response to the unbeliever. Maybe you've heard the gospel. Maybe you haven't really received it to be true. I think the first part we have to establish is this. Um, the gospel demands a response. There's only two responses, accepting of it or rejecting of it. There's, there's no middle ground. So for you hearing it saying, yeah, 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 I think it's true, but I don't know, I'm just going to put it off. That's called a rejection. It demands a response. And let me tell you right off the bat, the gospel is polarizing. It is. Uh, Paul even says in 1 Corinthians, it's either aroma of life or aroma of death. Have you ever smelled anything that died? It stinks. Like it either stinks or it's sweet. There's no neutral See, they're accepting, rejecting, loving, hating. There's no neutral to it. And so the question I have for you is, have you received the good news of Jesus dying in your place because of your sins against the holy God? Have you received it and accepted it to be true? And let's say hypothetically you're saying, well, I don't really know how to do it. Good, let me tell you how to do it. Here's how it starts. It begins with you looking at your life and recognizing that you are a sinner, that you've sinned against the holy God and you need a Savior. That is the very first step. Without that, there's no more steps to be taken because that's the gospel essence. It says you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that God has provided the salvation through His Son. Maybe another way of looking at it, on what basis will God accept you? Because you're good? No, because of Jesus. And so it starts with you, and the only way you can come to that truth is the Holy Spirit convicting you. So maybe you can say, God, I think I'm a sinner, but I don't really know. I think I've sinned against you, but I don't really understand. Maybe it starts with you saying, Holy Spirit, God, can you, whatever this guy's talking about, can you maybe help see that I'm a sinner, that I've sinned against you, and that I need a Savior? Do I see my sin for what it is or I'm self-justifying, saying, yeah, I'm not that bad of a person. Life is good. And if life is good, that means I'm a good person. That's not the case. Only Jesus can save you. And the gospel is continually going to confront you in your sins. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you feel mercy, feel grace. Lord, you know everybody in this room. You know the believer and the unbeliever. You know those who are standing firm and holding firm to the truths of the gospel. And you know, know those who don't. And Lord, those who are not standing firm or holding on to the truths of the gospel, can you help them? Can you help them to understand the gospel? Can you help them to understand the, the new identity they have in you? Can you help them to understand how this new identity impacts every part of their lives? 
And Lord, I, I pray for the unbeliever here, the, the person who does not know you, who maybe has heard it for the first time, that they are a sinner and that you have sent your son to die on the cross for their sins. Can you help them to recognize their sinfulness? Can you help them to recognize that they've sinned against you and they are unable to save themselves and they need a Savior and only Jesus can save them? Lord, this is a supernatural message. So can you take your supernatural word and implant it deep in our hearts? Can you do a work that only you can do? Can you convict? Can you reveal truth? Can you open up eyes? And can you all, all of us help us to respond? For some of us, help us to respond and saying, Lord, help me to stand firm on your truths. Help me to know the gospel. Lord, help me to understand this new identity I have in you. Help me to see how it impacts my life, every part of my life. Lord, help the unbeliever to respond and say, yes, Lord Jesus, come and save me. I am a sinner in need of a, a Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.